Welcome to another episode of the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is Neil James, who is the Director of Research at independent Minneapolis advertising agency, Solve. So Solve is small but mighty, having twice won the Ad Age Small Agency of the Year Award. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Um, and Neil's writing has been featured in Ad Age and Digiday and HubSpot and, and other places. And just judging by the incredible diversity of their customer list, I have no doubts that Neil is, is solving all kinds of different sorts of marketing challenges on a day to day basis for his clients. So we'll talk about that, of course. But, uh, you know, Neil and I share a few things in common. Uh, first of all, we're, we're both researchers. Second of all, we're both from St. Paul. Third, we each graduated from the University of Minnesota. And fourth, most, most importantly, perhaps, is uh, we've all, both been members of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul metal scene. And Neil, most recently, since 2008, with his band called Kuna Noon, who have released, I think, four full-length albums. Is that right? Four albums? Um, At least. I think, yeah, four full-length and an EP. Four full-length and an AP, EP, including the 2019 release, Patron Saint, uh, which is just absolutely incredible start to finish. I went to just kind of get a flavor and listen to one song, and uh, I sat down and I listened to the whole record. Everything is totally different. It's shredding, it's face melting, it's the playing is incredible, uh, just way better than <laughs> my band was back in the day. So uh, Kuna Noon is the name of the band, we'll talk about that as well. So welcome to the podcast, Neil. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you. So it's not every day you meet somebody who's got so many things in common in the, in the research space, which is really cool. Um, so let's, let's start with the research side. So I know you didn't set out in high school to be a market researcher someday. So let's, let's hear how you got into this space. Well, it's, it's a long and winding path and it's very indirect. You know, when I was at the university of Minnesota, I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. And <laughs> Same. <laughs> they, uh, I took a career exploration class where they say, or they told me, you might as well study what you like because statistically the odds of you ending up in that field are negligible. So I did <laughs> and I, um, I majored in philosophy coming out of college. Uh, graduating college, I moved into commission sales, which I did actually for a number of years and I, and I enjoyed and I was very good at it, but I kind of burnt out on it. Sure. And I had an aunt who worked in advertising who persuaded me to give the industry a try saying that, Neil, you're good at selling, you're good at creative work. This would probably be a good industry for you. So um, I kind of wormed my way into an internship at age 29, starting out in more of the conventional digital marketing path where I was a humble paid search specialist. Okay. And I worked my way up through many of the digital marketing channels, including social media, web development. But eventually I came to this realization that I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed with the digital prefix. 
I felt that that was going to be a redundant prefix over time. You know, you can sure. buy billboards that are digital. Most TV is served digitally. And so I put a lot of hard work into building more of my traditional marketing skill set, uh, inclusive of, well, not just traditional media buying, but also many traditional marketing concepts, concepts such as segmentation, branding, um, target sure. positioning. And, you know, I've been at Solve for nearly nine years now. I started there in 2013. And eventually in early 2021, the agency created a research department and installed me as its director, given my proximity to a lot of marketing effectiveness research, which is a domain that I have a lot of oversight and experience into, as well as research that feeds into the traditional strategy concepts of, like I said, segmentation, targeting, and positioning. So that's how I got into the role. And um, I touch everything from quant to qual to um, all of the concepts I just outlined. And I do so for a, a pretty wide range of clients spanning uh, energy, automotive, retail, you name it. Yeah, uh, just looking at the client list, it, you usually see all the clients sort of hang together in an industry or have something similar about them. But in your case, you've got Porsche and Bentley on one side, you have Goodwill and Easter Seals, you have Rustoleum, you have motorcycles, you have all over the board. So what, what, what is the secret sauce there? I think the secret sauce is that, you know, in a lot of cases, marketing is marketing. Kind of the analog I think of in my head is that there's lots of different variations of poker, right? There are mm -hmm. many different versions of how the game is played, but they all have four suits. They all have essentially 13 cards. And they're all sort of predicated on similar concepts. Sure. And you have to understand the dynamics of the individual poker game that you're still playing, of course, but the fundamentals of the game are largely the same as, as they are with a lot of card games. And I really think that a lot of that carries over into the marketing discipline. When you have a really firm grasp of the fundamentals and what actually makes marketing and many of its subcomponents like advertising, when you understand what makes that effective and what causes those efforts to build reputation, drive revenue, drive gross margins and profit, mm -hmm. you really can actually move pretty fluidly from industry to industry. And often it helps you to do so because lessons I learn in one industry, I can carry over into another. Right. Um, Oftentimes marketers assume that if I don't have industry knowledge, I can't function when in reality, one of the dangers of being specialized in one sector is it leads you down the same paths that yep. everyone else. You only really break through insights by combining insights from other horizontal sectors. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. I've always kind of wondered that as well. Uh, if, if you have if you're really focused hard on one industry, you know, the, the notion is that you can go extremely deep, but there's the risk of sameness, right? So um, outside in ideas can 
uh, can often be more powerful. So good stuff. Um, so you mentioned reputation. So speaking of reputations, uh, you have one in the in the Twin Cities metal community as as a really innovative and shredding guitarist. And so let's let's talk let's talk metal. So uh, when did you start playing? You know how did you start the band? Uh, let, let's hear your origin story there. Um, I started playing guitar around age fourteen, okay. and up in you know, Twin Cities, we had 93.7 The Edge, which was the local alternative station. And yeah. you know, most of what I was just playing around was alternative and pop punk. And I eventually started taking guitar lessons um, with a gentleman named Shane Osland, who in an effort to force me to get better at rhythm was making me learn Fear Factory and Megadeth right. and Metallica music, which I really didn't have that much exposure to. And I discovered that was really fun music to play. Um, it was considerably more fun than some of the other stuff I was playing. And, um, and I was enjoying the music quite a bit too. So uh, one of the guitar players who's still in our band today, Harry Rostovsev, I went to high school with him. He's one of my best friends. He uh, was sitting behind me in uh, a computer class and he knew that I played guitar, so he invited me to come try out for his band uh, that he was playing in, who had just lost the guitar player. So I auditioned for it, I joined. Um, and along with Harry and Mike Stroker, who's our bassist, that's been the band for 25 years. Wow. Um, we've gone through a few drummers. Our drummer, Jake, has been with us for about 15 years now. Um, prior to that, wow. we, kind of, we kind of went through a few of them, but uh, Jake's been with us for about 15 years. And the other significant change is that up until about 2007, I was the singer of the band. Right. Um, and then, because um, we brought in a new singer in 2008, we weren't actually really looking for a new singer. Um, Julie, the singer who's on most of the material that you can hear from us on Spotify, actually was a singer of a band out of Eau Claire that we did a lot of shows with. Mm -hmm. And when her band broke up, we weren't really looking for a singer, but she was so talented that we just couldn't let yeah. someone like that sit on the sidelines. So we asked her if she wanted to you know, try out and she did and she's been with us uh, ever since and she's just an incredibly powerful singer whose yeah. voice is pretty pretty hard her talent her raw talent is pretty hard to replicate yeah yeah absolutely true it's it's creates this uh emblematic sound and she can do so much with her voice it's really uh something else i can i can understand how you just were opportunistic and said all right, hey, you're in. Um, cool. So, so tell us about the name Kuna Noon. I know it's spelled C W N A N N W N, and I think it's from Welsh Welsh mythology, if I'm not mistaken. So, where does that come from? Oh, you're correct. Um, uh, Mike, our bass player, when he was in high school, he had a German teacher who was big into mythology, and that teacher said, "I always thought Kuna Noon would be a good band name." <laughs> and I mean, that's basically where it came from. And so we adopted it. Um, you know, uh, at times it gets a little hard to spell it to people. I think some people try to find it and struggle with it. 
Yeah. But at the same time, it is distinct. Doesn't sure. get mistaken for anybody else. Nobody, nobody confuses it with anything. So um, that's where it came from. All right. And in Kunanun, it means literally like hounds of the netherworld or hounds of hell or something like that, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, cool, cool. All right, so what's what's next for you guys? You've been playing for a long time. Um, yeah, what's next? Well, we've been on a bit of a hiatus um, since the the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, we started playing together when we were 18 in 1998. You know, now pretty much everyone in the band is over 40. So <laughs> it is, uh, we've certainly accomplished a lot. We've played with a lot of metal acts, um, a lot of big national acts, and we're very proud of what we accomplished. And, you know, now at this stage, we're really only doing stuff if we want to do it. And if, it, if it's interesting and fun to us, sure. um, it's not a, you know, every weekend thing like it used to be. We are working on a separate side project, which is going to launch probably in the next month or two. Um, can't divulge details on that until that's all fully set up and good to go. But um, we've we've stayed active. It's it's a big part of our lives, and I'm very thankful for uh, the opportunities uh, that music has brought and sure. uh, the impact that it's had on uh, ourselves and other people. Cool. So you started playing in the band long before uh, you started at Solve. So I'm curious to know, um, are there any lessons that, that you brought with you from um, playing in music, that creative side that you brought with you to your agency life? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, more later than earlier, you know, um, the biggest lesson is, um, when you're on a stage, there's an impetus to put on a show. It isn't simply just plugging in your instrument and playing the music just through your amplifier. Like you, you are there to put on a performance and you need to command the stage. And right. you've been in bands, you, you can tell when front people and musicians are in full command of that stage right and there are other bands who don't have that stage presence and even though they may be highly technically proficient it's lacking right like it just yep. doesn't have the the energy that it needs to have it doesn't captivate the crowd the same way um and one of the things you'll sometimes find in the marketing world uh inclusive of research is that there is sometimes a little bit of a fear of um, style over substance, right? Nobody wants the person to be the person who's all showmanship and doesn't have any uh, cattle to go with their hat. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that's a false choice. I think that the most effective people who operate in our space have command of both style substance yep. because you do need to have the technical chops and, and precision to be able to perform this craft whether sure. your role is in research as as mine is whether you operate in the creative space you do need to have the the technical skills but you also have to be able to 
communicate those skills and what you've produced in a way that is digestible and in a way that is persuasive and in a way that leads your audience where you want them to go. Sure. And I think that that's ultimately what an artist is doing on stage. They're not simply just playing a composition. They're taking the audience for a ride. Yeah. And having the having cultivated the ability to take that audience on a ride, whether it's through a song about sea monsters uh, or whether it is about a change that they need to make as a brand and how they view the market and the biggest um, perception that is holding them back from achieving growth the same thing it has to be dynamic it has to be persuasive and i think that's probably one of the top lessons that i've taken from life as a musician to life in the marketing industry yeah no i i love that i love that um so often really good credible research doesn't have the impact that it should have uh, simply because of the medium of delivery or how it's delivered is doesn't doesn't work right um so it has to be both right? so i really yeah i can i can certainly relate to that um so thinking about the research side you know you've kind of brought a unique uh experience set uh to your work in research uh unique background curious to know as you sit in the seat and uh look across your clients and uh, sort of the research landscape what do you see the future looking like? What's going to become more important or is more important now? I think what's really unique in the world of research is the extent to which it's really become democratized over the past five to six years. Yeah. It is so easy to go online and for what is compared to the old days, a nominal amount of money field an incredibly robust study and yeah. not just robust, but quickly. Um, yeah. You know, we once in our main conference room were having a debate over whether consumers would know what the term al fresco meant. So right. while everybody was arguing, I whipped out the credit card and just fielded a quick Google consumer survey and said, yeah. all right. Um, Looks like only about 30% of people know what al fresco means. So if, if we're comfortable with that, great. If we're not, we got to move on, but that's what it is. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, as part of that, I mean, it's really exciting that research tools are now so much more available to people who want to practice them. Um, with that means there's a lot more research and that means there's a lot more good research and there's a lot more bad research. Exactly. Yeah. And so it is really incumbent on people to pay a lot more attention to things that inhibit the quality of research. You know, that's at the tactical side, making mm -hmm. sure that when you do field a survey through an online panel that you go through and audit the responses, how many people in there are just straight lining and clicking always agree on every response or putting in junk open text answers just so they can get through it as fast as possible and get their incentive. Right. Um, oftentimes it's just bad research design. You know, one of the interesting things about research is that 
if you get bad graphic design, it's not going to kill you. I mean, I guess it could get bad enough to where it would, but but in general, you know, an average to bad graphic design, um, yeah, it could it, it can have some negative impact. But the difference between that and bad research design is so much more so much different in that bad research design can actually lead you in the wrong direction and lead you to believe something that is not fundamentally true, which yes. can have um, all sorts of negative unintended consequences. So just being able to do research um, easily and quickly isn't enough. You really do need to have a grasp of the concepts so that you do not inadvertently lead you and the resources of your company in a bad direction. Yeah, um, just a quick follow-up question on that because I, I know exactly what you're saying and I've, I've lived through this evolution, I think, of this space. Um, who bears the responsibility for that? Is this just a Wild West buyer beware or do tool providers and service providers have some sort of responsibility to uh, you know, protect the end users from uh, doing bad work? I think it's a shared responsibility across the board. I think it is the, it starts with the, the client or company who is procuring research to really have a handle on what it is they want to learn, to yeah. not just simply cast a wide net that says, I have a whole bunch of broad things I want to know, and I'm going to dredge the ocean and see what comes up. You know, <laughs> yeah. you um, that puts everybody in a tough position. And the more focused you make, and <clears throat> you, the more focused and and clear you are with, here's what I don't know, and here's what I need to learn, and here's how I'm going to use it. That puts the research professional in the best possible position to succeed because they'll know how to then best design the research, choose the tools, structure everything so that the whole process is as effective and efficient as possible. And it's, yeah. of course, incumbent on them to deliver against those promises. And I, you know, I don't think there's anything that um, an online company can do to 100% insulate against bad actors. Um, that's a really tough ask, particularly as things like bots become more and more yep. um, difficult to differentiate from human beings. Uh, I expect them to be cognizant of the issue and to be fighting and deploying as many resources as is possible towards mitigating the effects of bad faith survey takers and other factors that would impact the quality of research mm -hmm. and to be good partners in ensuring that the people that pass through our systems, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, are leading us in the direction we need to know. But I, I don't expect perfection. You know, um, yeah. I mean, even, even 70 years ago, they thought Dewey defeated Truman, you know? Yeah. And so... <laughs> It, it, it is a social science research in a lot of these cases, and it's not medical science. It's not something that it can be measured to the level of precision 
that I think a lot of people would prefer be measured to. So you do have to, everybody involved has to have some comfort with ambiguity and, you know, be open to subjective interpretation of the results. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Cool. All right. So this is a podcast, right? You've got lots of varied interests professionally and personally. Um, so what are some of the media sources, can be a podcast, can be whatever, uh, that you turn to for maybe in, information, inspiration, or enjoyment? I mean, that, that covers a lot of ground. <laughs> That's right. Wide open question, man. Um, you know, in a professional capacity, when it comes to building uh my marketing chops and keeping current. I'm actually, I have a very selective diet. Uh, over the past you know, decade plus that I've been operating in this industry, uh, I, I work really hard to try to keep my list to a small group of um, individuals or institutions that I happen to find particularly credible. You know, Some of the people that I follow online include uh, Mark Ritson, Roger Martin, Dave Trott, Tom Roach, Rory Sutherland, y you know, all of those, those guys are very wise and insightful and have a really good bullshit detector. And I yep. appreciate that. You know, when I get out of sort of the work realm, I tend to, you know, drift towards a little bit more of a Sort of a, a curated oddball experience and I'm a big fan of uh, absurdist and surreal entertainment whether it's you know like Twin Peaks in the drama format or Aqua Teen Hunger Force in the comedy format <laughs> and so a lot of what I follow online tends to fall into the realm of like you know the drills of the world or the block party or you know stuff that is just very um just very absurd and very strange. I've always been really drawn towards that type of humor. And of course I do, you know, try to, you know, consume as much, there's so much entertainment media out there to consume. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to keep myself to a reasonably high quality diet of, you know, prestige entertainment and music. Um, that's that's a hard thing to to I guess, cover all of it, but um, you know, it's it, it's a pretty diverse diet that I I work hard to ensure has two feet on the ground. Got it, got it, cool. All right, well, here's the question I really want to know, Neil. Um, I got to know this. I'm just so curious. I, I don't have a whole lot of people from metal bands on, on the podcast, although I've had a few. Um, so uh, I'm very interested in your answers to this. Might be metal, might not. I don't know what you're gonna say, but uh, this is a key question. So you're stranded on a desert island. You've got three records at your disposal to keep you company for the rest of your days. Of your choosing, what are those records? That's a really difficult to ask. And I, and I would bet that, um, you know, if you ask me this question in a month, I could see myself giving conceivably different answers to it. <laughs> but if you give me three, probably Seventh Son of a Seventh Son by Iron Maiden. Every, nice. every, yes. every month that you ask me this question, that disc will make the list. Um, I There's certainly arguments for other albums from their 
catalog, but that's my personal favorite. I think it's it's their best. It's it not nothing to skip on the album. Just a tremendous uh, piece all the way around. We've covered. Yeah. I think three songs off of that as Kuna Noon at varying points in our careers. Just, just a tremendous record. Cool. Um, I probably would have uh, Stranger Than Fiction by Bad Religion. Yes, love that record. <laughs> um, Bad Religion was a huge, huge influence on me growing up. Yeah. I, I love the band and their catalog. Um, they they just like Iron Maiden have so many to choose from. It's really hard to pick one, but yep. you know, Stranger Than Fiction. I think some of you know the purists would turn their nose up at it because that was, I think that was the second of their major label releases. Yeah, that's right. That's that's where they really kind of hit the mainstream, I guess. But it's such a good record, start to finish. It, it, it's just a, it's a brilliant album, and it takes me back to being seventeen years old instantly. And I probably, you know, uh, the third one was the hardest to pick. I, I think I'd probably land on And Justice for All by Metallica. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So cool, man. Um, awesome choices. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's really hard to skip a song on that album that brings something different that Seventh Son doesn't. Uh, boy, a lot of content. Uh, other good candidates for that for that third slot. Um, it was hard to omit Rust in Peace or Master of Puppets, um, but those uh, that's probably where I'd land is Seventh Son of the Seventh Son, Stranger Than Fiction, and and Justice for All. <laughs> so awesome, so awesome. This is clearly clearly one of my favorite uh, uh, selection sets for this question. So. Thank you for indulging me. Uh, I got my metal fix for the day. I think I know what I want to listen to tonight. So that's awesome. Hey, Neil, I really appreciate the time. It's been a great chat. Um, uh, really insightful in terms of research. And, uh, and for me, you know, talking the metal and going back to St. Paul is just uh, always welcome. So thanks so much for the time. Let's definitely stay in touch and rock and roll. Thanks for having me, Matt. And, uh... Thank you.